So this morning, we are going to be addressing and unpacking the subject of lust, uh, adultery, sexuality, divorce a little bit. So it's going to be a really easy subject, really easy this morning, <laughs> nothing heavy. We're taking it easy, okay? So we got a warning. We sent an email out to the parents earlier. Chad brought up their announcement. So one last time, if you have children here and you don't want them to hear, what we're going to talk about today is TVMA, okay? So, so if, if they're not the right age... They can leave right now, okay? Just let it know. Don't get offended later. So that's what we're doing. This morning, we're talking about uh, lust and about sexuality. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this subject. We're going to look at this passage under two headings. I got two points for you this morning. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning is we are going to look at the problem of lust. We're going to begin by looking at the problem of lust. Then after we look at the problem of lust, then we're going to conclude by looking at the solution for lust. All right, so we're looking at the problem of it, and then we're concluding by looking at the solution for it. All right, so let's begin by looking at the problem of lust. According to Jesus in this passage, I need you to follow along, there's two problems with lust, okay? The first problem with lust is where it leads. The second problem with lust is where it comes from, okay? Those are the two problems. It is a two-pronged problem, where it leads and where it comes from. So the first thing we're going to see is where does lust lead. Well, Jesus tells us in the passage, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So according to Jesus, the first reason why lust is a problem is because of where lust leads you, where lust takes you. He says there's three places that lust takes you if, you, if it goes unchecked in your life. Two of them are short term. One of them is long term. He says if lust goes unchecked in your life, it leads to physical adultery. It leads to physical divorce. And it leads eventually, if you don't deal with it, to hell. Okay, very user-friendly, very family-friendly message today, okay? We're going to just really just very seeker-friendly, right? So, so, so sexual sin, according to Jesus, lust that goes unchecked, leads us to three places, two short-term, one long-term, adultery, divorce, hell, okay? So, so we're going to look at each one of these because each one of these is, is very important, okay? According to Jesus, the first thing that lust leads you towards is physical adultery. The reason why lust leads you to physical adultery is because according to Jesus, lust, lust is adultery. Lust and adultery are one and the same thing. Now, we don't actually believe that, right? Just like last week when we were talking about anger, no one actually believed that anger and murder were the same thing. But according to Jesus, they were. According to Jesus, also in this passage, adultery and lust are also one and the same. And the same argument I used last week is the same argument that I use today. The reason why lust and adultery are the exact same thing, even though they don't seem like they're the same thing, is because last week I explained the, the, the illustration, one pastor put it this way, the, of the two acorns, right? He said, if someone were to give you two acorns and you were to take one of the acorns, put it in a drawer in your room and never look at it again, and then you were to take the other acorn and bury it in your yard and water it and put it in the perfect condition for it to grow. One acorn is never going to grow and the other acorn is going to grow, right? 
So what we do is if we haven't committed physical adultery, we judge the people who have committed adultery. And we're like, man, I would never do that. I'm so much better than person A or person B because I would never do that. Well, according to Jesus, lust is adultery. Why? Because lust is the acorn that becomes adultery. So the only difference between you and the person that's committed physical adultery is that you, by God's grace, had your acorn put in a place where it wasn't watered, where it wasn't nurtured, where it didn't grow. And their acorn did grow. But you're nowhere better. You're not better than them because you are an adulterer at heart. The same acorn that led to their sin is the same acorn that you have in the seed, in seed form in your heart. So lust and adultery are the same thing. That's why and I, was, I was informed that I didn't bring this up last week. And now I'm actually, I didn't bring this up last service. So I'm doing it again. I brought it up in one service and not the other. Now I'm doing it again now. But here's what's fascinating about the, the, the Ten Commandments. Whenever you see a commandment, the Ten Commandments. The commandments always give you the, the extreme version, the, the worst manifestation of that sin. So when the Bible tells us in Exodus 20, do not murder, what it's actually talking about is do not get angry. But murder is when anger has gotten to its full extent. See? When, when it says do not, commit, do not uh, bear false witness, what it's talking about is lying in court. But the sin that it's actually condemning is lying, but it's giving you the worst example, the worst manifestation of lying. The worst type of lying is lying under oath in court. The same thing is true with adultery. When the Bible tells us in the, in the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery, what it's actually dealing with is lust, but it's giving you the worst example of lust. Lust that goes unchecked will eventually lead to adultery. It is the worst manifestation of that sin. That's how the commandments work. It gives us the biggest example, the worst manifestation, and it works its way down. Okay? So Jesus says, follow with me here, that adultery and lust are the same thing. And the only difference between someone who's just struggling with lust in their heart and someone who's actually committed physical adultery is that this per- they're, they're, go- they're both going down the same road. The other person just went further down that road. But we're both on the same road. Amen. So you're no better than them. Okay, so go ahead and take that log out of your eye because you're no better than they are. We are all adulterers. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, here's the thing. As we look at this, this, this word, this Greek word, uh, adultery, what does, what does adultery actually mean? What, what I find fascinating about the word adultery in Greek is that, it, like in many ways, it, it, like many Greek words, there's so much more depth to the word than, than there is in English. When we think of adultery, we just think of a husband cheating on his wife or a wife cheating on her husband. But what's interesting about the word adultery in the Bible, especially in this passage, is that the word adultery, it means to seduce or to be seduced. So it means that either you're seduced to do it or you're trying to seduce someone else to do it. Here's the other thing, and this is the Will Franco uh, uh, word study translation. I would argue that the reason why you even commit adultery if you're not married is because if one day you are going to get married and the person you're sleeping with, right, is not your spouse, you're actually committing adultery ahead of time. It's pre-adultery. You're cheating before you actually get to the person you're going to marry. And you're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to marry them. Then don't touch them. you don't know, don't touch them. Then you don't have to worry about anything. Okay? So what we see is that lust 
is very dangerous because according to Jesus, one of the places that lust can take us is to physical adultery. The reason why it can take us to physical adultery is because lust is spiritual adultery. That's what you're already committing adultery. And if you go down that path long enough, it'll actually end up in physical adultery. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that, that I always try to do is, you know, I like sharing stories about my family and, and some of the things that have happened. And you would think that talking about a subject like sex and lust and, se- you know, all these things that we're talking about today, you, I wouldn't have a story to share with you, right? But, but unfortunately, my daughter Leah figured out a way to give me a story about this subject, okay? I wish I didn't have a story, but I have a story, okay? So about, about a month ago, my daughter Leah, who's five years old, uh, started going to kindergarten, right? And so she's going to kindergarten, it's uh, in U46, and she's, she's loving it. And, and like me, she's very much of an ex- extrovert, and so she's loving kindergarten. And she comes back, and she has all these stories and whatever, right? The other day, I think it was like maybe week, you know, week one, week two, they, 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 t- they had some time to, to draw some pictures. And so they gave Leah some markers, and she's not that great of a drawer, but whatever. Well, we'll give her grace, right? So she, so she, she, she gets, I'm just being honest, I, I can't lie to the girl, right? It's not her future. So anyway, so, so, so she started to, to, to draw a little bit. And so she draws all the time at the house, right? And we, sometimes we can tell what it is. Sometimes we have no idea what it is, right? But this day, she decided to bring the three pieces of art home. And when she brought them home, she had to explain them to my wife. And so what you're going to see as I put these photos up is that at the top right corner, there's like a little block I put there. It's because Lily wrote what the pictures actually mean, but I don't want you guys to see them because I I, I want to explain each one to you, okay? So this is the first photo that she brought home. First of all, I want you to see how she writes her name. That's Leah, L-E. The E is kind of, I don't know what's up with the E there. And I think that's a P, but she wrote A, okay? So it's Leap, (laughs) Lep is her actual name. So she draws this, and Lily looks at it. There's a sun shining. Everyone's smiling. And she's like, honey, what, what is this? What, what, what's, what's this first photo of, right? Is it a family? Are they on a picnic? She's like, no, mom. Those are zombies trying to eat people. <laughs> okay? And if you don't see it, the problem's with you, not her, okay? Because that's... That's clearly seen by the grass and the sun, okay? (laughs) Then she brings another photo. In this photo, you're like, man, what the heck is that? Right, you're looking at it, and Lily, you know, Lily was trying to take guesses at, Lily, Leah, is it this, is it that? And she's like, mom, no, it's a lion at the zoo. Okay, so that's a lion at the zoo. And again, if you don't see it, there's something wrong with you, because that's clearly a lion, and that's clearly a zoo, okay? Those are bars and the lion is incarcerated, okay? <laughs> so we're having a great time. Like, she's drawn photos like this before, so we're, you know, Leah, Lily's just, you know, encouraging her, honey, that's great. You know, this is awesome. The third photo was the one that concerned me, though. Okay, when I, when I came home, Lily started to explain these to me, and God, pra- praise God it wasn't Leah telling me because I would not have reacted godly. This was the third photo she drew. So I look at it, and there's a, there's a blue person, and there's a brown person, so I'm like, look, she's so racially, you know, aware and diverse. I love it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so I'm looking at it, and Lily says, so Leah, tell me, tell me what this one is. You know, is it, is it who, who's the girl? She's like, it's me. And you're like, oh, are, are, is that your friends? Like, what do you, Leah looks at her, and she says, no, mom, this is me and my two boyfriends. <laughs> so... I come home, I find out that this is her and her two boyfriends. And so I immediately 
start doing the godly thing. I start doing research, figuring out who this guy is, who are the potential boyfriends that she's talking about. And I'm not figuring it out to pray for them, okay? Like, let's, just, let's be honest. So we sit down with Leah and we discover, we, there's one guy for sure, but, but, but we discover that the guy at her, in her school who, who she's infatuated with, in love with, is a guy named Caleb. And here's what I found out about little old Caleb. And I'm using his name too, like I'm not protecting his identity at all. <laughs> I found out that about week two of kindergarten, Caleb goes up to my daughter. He says, you know what, Leah? You are beautiful. So Leah, instead of using her rape whistle and, you know, like using like, like, a, like pepper spray, she believed it. She bought into it. Okay. So then the next time I go pick up Leah at school, I'm looking out for Caleb. Where is Caleb? Right? Here's what I found out the following week. I find out through my wife, who found out through the teacher, that someone kissed someone, okay? So I'm like, Caleb, I'm taking you out, bro. This is getting, this is getting dead serious. I'm done, right? I'm calling your mom, taking you to jail. Like, this is serious, okay? But here's what I found out. It wasn't Caleb that kissed Leah. It was Leah that kissed Caleb. So... We get home, so all this stuff is happening at this school, and I don't want anyone to know I'm a pastor, okay? Like, I don't want anyone to know that that's my daughter, right? Like, so people come up to me and be like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm a rapper, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, uh, I don't want anyone to know, okay? So, so, so Leah, she, she, she comes home, we sit her on the couch, and we want to get to the bottom. We thought this was going to be like an hour-long interrogation. Why did you kiss Caleb. We weren't even done asking the question. And literally, like, she was shaking with so much excitement, she couldn't even, like, hold it in. She's like, I kissed him because he's so cute. I couldn't help it. Pray for my family. If this is her at five, my gosh. So like I said, I wish I didn't have a story, but my daughter figured out a way to get me one, okay? So here's the thing. When you look at this, this sin of lust, at this temptation for, for, for lust, he says the first place where it can take you is physical adultery, right? That's the first destination. If you're not careful where it can take you, but it can also lead you to divorce because he brings up divorce right after. It says divorce is another place where it can take you. But here's what's really important. I don't want you to miss this. Even though Jesus says that lust and adultery are the same thing. So in God's eyes, when God sees lust in your heart or adultery with your body, in his eyes, those are the exact same things. He, there's not one sin that's worse than the other, right? But here's what's fascinating. Even though they're equal in God's eyes, their consequences are not the same. Okay? I want to make this clear. Even though lust and adultery are the same thing in God's eyes. If you've lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery in, in Jesus' eyes, in God's eyes, right? Even though that's true, the desire and the deed are equal in God's eyes, it doesn't mean that the consequences are the same. Here's why I bring that up. Because what some of you might be thinking is, well, if I already committed adultery by thinking about it, I might as well just go through with it then, right? If God's already angry at me, if God has already called it adultery, then I might as well just pursue and do whatever it is that I was tempted to do because I'm already an adulterer. No, 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 no. Even though those things are one and the same as far as God is concerned, 
the consequences are vastly different, right? With one, you can go to the Lord and deal with it. With the other, you, if, you, if you pursue it and it actually goes from being a desire to being a deed, you can blow up your entire family. The ramifications are horrendous. It becomes a generational sin, potentially. So even though they're the same as far as what they mean in God's eyes, they're both equal in, in, in sin. One has way more ramifications than the other. Okay? And it's important to make that distinction because I don't want you to think, oh, well, I'm already an adulterer. I might as well just do it. No, no, that's not, that's not what he's getting at here. Here's the other thing. So, so, so remember, we're talking about why lust is a problem. The first reason why lust is a problem is because of where it leads. It leads us to adultery. It leads us to divorce. But I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus says, if it goes unchecked, it can also lead you to hell. It can lead you to hell. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, here we go. Here comes the, the hell and brimstone. I knew that that was the kind of church this was. I thought this guy was different. I thought this church was different. But here comes the legalism. Here comes all the, oh, I can't, you know, look at someone. I can't, oh, you're that kind of church. Finally, you've revealed your true colors, right? Religious people, when they look at the subject of sex, religious people think sex is gross. It's nasty, right? And the only reason why we should ever have sex is to procreate, never to have pleasure, never to enjoy it. Sex is gross. Secular people, sex isn't gross. Sex is God. Sex is deified. Sex is where I find my identity. And my, my, I can change my gender on a whim. I can do whatever I want because my sexuality is what ultimately defines me. So, so in religious circles, it's gross. In secular circles, it's God. You would think that Jesus is saying that sex is gross. Jesus is not saying sex is gross. And if you read that into it, you're being religious. You're not actually seeing what he's saying. Jesus says it's not gross and it's not God. It's a gift. It's a good gift that's meant to be stewarded. It's not meant to be ignored, and it's not meant to be worshipped. It's a gift that's meant to be stewarded. Right? So we need to have a proper perspective of sex. Now, here's the thing. Because you're sitting here, maybe this is your first time at church, or you're still trying to figure out if, you know, Christianity is for you, you're sitting here, and you're like, all right, thank you. Now I don't ever have to come back here again because you're just like, every church I've ever been to, it's all rules, it's all legalism, you hate sex, and I should never look at someone ever again. I'm never coming back again. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. Here's what's so fascinating about sex. You can think whatever you want about sex. But the reason why what you think doesn't matter is because you're not the one that created it. God was. Okay? So you can treat sex however you want. The consequences aren't going to be the ones that you decide. It's going to be the ones that God decides. Okay? See, if I go to a store, let's say I go to a, I don't know, Let's, go, let's say I go to Lowe's and I buy a, a, a dresser or a, or a workbench, right? And, and I'm putting that workbench together. If at any point I have a problem with putting it together, I look at the instruction manual. If there's something missing or I, I can't understand something, there's almost always a number on the instruction manager, manual, right? But here's what's interesting. The number is almost never to the person who just sold it to you. Like, it's not a, it's not a number to Lowe's. The number is almost always to the manufacturer, right? It's not to the retailer, it's to the manufacturer, the person who made it. So if I'm having an issue putting this thing together, I got to call the person who made it. I got to call the person who designed it. And so if sex isn't working out for you, so if you're addicted to pornography or masturbation or, 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 or any other oral sex or whatever it is at first base, second base, third base, whatever base you're on, right? If you, if you have a problem with sex, you should go to the person who created it. You should go for the person who has the instruction. Don't go back and return sex and say, oh, I'm done. You give it back to the retailer. I thought this was going to work. It doesn't work. 
Call the manufacturer. Call the one who created it. And here's the thing about sex. Because sex is created by God, like I said, it doesn't matter how you think or uh, perceive it as, the consequences are always going to be the ones that God prescribed. Not the ones that you prescribed, but that God prescribed. So let me give you an example. Let's say that we're talking about food here. And I stand up and I tell you, listen, if all you eat is sugar and carbs, you're going to get fat. You can sit here and you can be like, man, I don't agree with that at all. I don't care what you say, Pastor Will. I'm going to go home and I'm going to get you a bunch of sugar and a bunch of carbs. You can go ahead. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist or an agnostic or a Muslim or a Jew. If all you eat is sugar and carbs, you're going to get fat. Food does not care what your theology is. Food does not care what your worldview is. Okay? Food, certain types of food, too much of certain types of food make you fat. It doesn't matter what your political view is. doesn't matter what your theological view is. doesn't matter what your background is. doesn't matter what your education is. That's what food does. The same thing is true with sex. It doesn't matter what your view of sex is. It doesn't matter what your faith background is. You can think whatever you want about sex. If you do not treat sex in an appropriate way, it will burn down your life, regardless of how you feel about it. Okay? That's how this works. Because you didn't create it. God created it. So just like someone who's gained a bunch of weight from eating the wrong types of foods, like, I don't know what's going on. Well, I can tell you what's going on. Someone who's, who's struggling with sexual sin and it's burned down their life, it's not a mystery. You're, you're trying to do something without the manufacturer's purpose in mind. You didn't create it, so you don't get a, ch a choice to decide what to do with it. Or maybe you do, but don't be surprised when the consequences are the ones that he decided. Okay? That's how this works. Then he says that the last thing, that last place where sex can, uh, uh, lust can lead you, so it can lead you to adultery, it can lead you to divorce, then he says that it can lead you to hell. Now, that's a pretty, you know, bold statement. Hell? Here's what I found fascinating, though. This week, I was reading this article on the Gospel Coalition website, and, and, and what the, 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 the author of the article said that I found so fascinating, he said, one of the consequences... One of the characteristics of hell that people almost always miss, miss when they look at what the Bible says about hell. Everyone, when we think about hell, we think about fire and we think about gnashing of teeth and we think about, you know, uh, 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 loneliness, right? But what's fascinating, it says one of the things that we can easily overlook if we don't have a, 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 proper, a proper theology of hell is that what makes hell hell is the isolation, is the separation from God. It's the exile from God. Here's what the author, of the, uh, the author of the article said that was fascinating. He said, if you don't deal with lust, eventually it will lead you to hell. But when you struggle with lust here, you can actually bring hell to earth. You can actually get a foreshadowing of what hell is going to be like. Because one of the consequences of hell is isolation, separation, right? Distance. So when I struggle with sexual sin here, when you struggle with sexual, sexual sin here, one of the things that sexual sin does immediately is it causes division. It causes isolation. It causes separation from the people who are trying to hold you accountable, but even from the people that you're married to. I read a book a few months ago. I came across a quote in a book a few months ago called The Premarital Sex in America. And it's, it was written by these Harvard graduates, not a Christian book at all. And they said, this one, I don't know if you guys know this, but one of the things that's happening now, it's a modern day phenomenon, is that now even secular people are saying that pornography is horrible and it destroys you. They're all finally catching on, right? And in the book, he talks about the three ways in which pornography destroys any relationship. 
but specifically a romantic relationship. He said that young men today, I know women are included in this, but in the book they use young men. They say that young men today, when they are addicted to pornography, it affects their relationships in three ways. The first way is that they judge everyone by the standards that the pornography has put in their mind. Everyone is judged by those standards. So it's harder for them to find someone viable because they're comparing them to a perfect person that doesn't exist. The second thing he says is that young men today are less likely to pursue relationship. Why? Because if they're finding what they need on a computer screen by themselves, why am I going to put the work in to try to get to know someone when I can just get that by myself? So it's affecting their desire and their willingness to work on relationships. And then the third thing he says is that the person who does end up married to that individual for the rest of their relationship has to conform to, the, to the, the standards that that individual has in his mind. So all of a sudden, sex is all about do this, do this, do that. Why? Oh, because I saw it somewhere. It destroys relationships. It causes isolation. That's why a lot of men or a lot of women who are struggling with pornography aren't that intimate with their spouse. Because if I'm already finding what I need, I don't really, we're not going to be as intimate as we can be because I'm already finding that without you. And I don't have to love that person on the screen. I don't have to pursue that person on the screen. I don't have to listen to the person on the screen. If I can get it apart from you, why do I need you? We're just roommates now. This is dead serious. This is dead serious. So even though it could potentially lead to hell, eventually, if it goes unchecked without Jesus, it can actually bring hell to earth. You can start to get a foretaste of the isolation, of the separation, of the exile that happens when you're living in sexual sin. It affects you relationally because you don't want people to find out. It affects you emotionally. It affects you romantically. It destroys your relationships. When we talked about sex a few months ago, I brought up that one author said that sex is like fire in a fireplace or like fire in a fire pit. If it's in the fire pit, if it's in the fireplace, it works great. It warms up the whole house. But if that same fire was three feet away on the carpet or three feet away in the woods, you just burn down the whole thing. Okay? This is dead serious stuff. Dead serious stuff. So, the first reason why lust is a problem is because of where it leads. It's because of where it leads. But the second reason why lust is a problem is not just because of where it leads, but listen to this, is because of where it comes from. It's not because of where it could potentially take you, but it's actually a problem because of where it comes from. Look at what Jesus says here. I don't want you to miss this. Jesus says, uh, uh, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So according to Jesus, the reason why lust is such a problem is because of where it comes from. He says that it is a desire that comes from in your heart. And this happens a lot when we struggle with lust. We're tempted to, to blame the people on the screen. On the screen. We're tempted to blame the person who wore the inappropriate outfit. We're so quick to blame the people who, who, who caused us to lust. Jesus is saying lust isn't caused by the people around you. Lust comes from your heart. All they've given you is an opportunity to reveal the lust and the adultery in your heart. They didn't make you do anything. They just gave you an opportunity to reveal who you actually are. Okay. Lust, he, he, so, so let's, let's, let's unpack these two words because these two words are, are, are very loaded words in the original language. The first word I want to unpack is the word lust. This is what's fascinating. When we think of lust, we always, almost always think of it sexually. We almost always think of lust in a sexual way, 
right? So if I were to give out no cards and say, hey, give me a definition of lust, almost all of you would have something about sexual desire. Here's what's fascinating, though. The word there for lust is used over 60 times in the New Testament, and only twice is it used in the sexual context. So in other words, lust, the majority of the time, has nothing to do with sexuality. That's fascinating, because we think it is. Here's what the word actually means. The word there is epithumia. Epi means over, thumia means desire. So it's an over-desire. It's an inordinate desire. It's when you take a good thing, sex, and you make it a God thing. Okay? You put it in a place where it's not supposed to be. So you start expecting from sex what only Jesus can give you. So, so think about this. Sexual sin, when we think of sexual sin, we only think of the behavior. Hey, I'm struggling with sexual sin. Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're never going to actually deal with your sin, your sexual sin, unless you get to the bottom of it. What it actually is more than just your walk, it's your worship. It's, a, it's an over-desire. It's a worship of something smaller than Jesus. You are looking for horizontally in others what should only be found in Jesus. And so when he talks about the word lust, yeah, he's talking about pornography and, and all the other things, oral sex and all the things that happened before, first, second, third base. He's talking about all those things, right? It's like a big drawer when he talks about lust. But he's talking about the physical, the behavioral part, but he's also talking about the beliefs, like what you actually are worshiping. The reason why you struggle with sexual sin is not because you have a, a behaving problem, you have a believing problem. Listen, if you don't get that, you're going to try. Here's what a lot of guys do. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on. You, you have all these external, you know, uh, 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 exterior steps to try to fix your problem. But the problem is, is that it's an interior problem. So, 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 so you can do all these things on the outside, but if you don't deal with your heart, which is where lust comes from, then you're in big trouble. You're in big, big trouble. Look at this quote from Dr. David Polison. This is fascinating. He quotes John Calvin at the beginning. He says, John Calvin put it this way. And the quote's a little bit complicated, but then he explains it. He says, we teach that all human desires are evil and charge them with sin. Not in that they are natural, but because they are inordinate. Then he explains it. He says, in other words, the evil in our desires, listen to this, often lies not in what we want, but in the fact that we want it too much. Grasping that the evil lies in the ruling status of the desire, not the object itself, is frequently a turning point in self-understanding, in seeing the need for Christ's mercies, and in changing. So what he's saying is that a lot of the things that we struggle with, sex included, it's not that those things are bad, it's that we've taken good things and made them God things. They are great gifts, but they are terrible gods. And so the reason why you struggle with sexual sin is way more than behavioral. It's believing. You're believing a lie. You're, you're believing a false gospel. You believe that if I can find someone who loves me and accepts me and, and satisfies me with pleasure, then I'll be happy. And Jesus is saying that will never, ever happen. What you're actually doing is you have an idolatry problem before you have an adultery problem. Your issue is not adultery. It's idolatry. Okay? That's what we see here. That's why this is so dangerous. If we don't get to, to the bottom of this, if we don't call it what it is, then we're going to be in major, major trouble. That's why, listen, I, I, here's, again, back to what I was saying earlier. You're probably thinking, okay, here come the religious people telling me that sex is growth. gross. I should never think about it. I should never do it unless I'm married and I want to procreate. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Because there's a difference between looking and lusting. He's not saying that you can't appreciate someone's good looking. Jesus isn't saying that you walk around with blinders and like, oh, always like this. Like, I can't look. I'm not going to look. 
There's a lot of guys that have tried that actually, right? There's, there's, a, there's a church father named Origen who, who he actually, he, he took the whole cutting off the hand and stuff. He actually cut his male body part thinking that it was going to stop him from doing it. The problem is he woke up the next day and he still had a human heart. Lust doesn't come from your body part. It comes from your heart. So you can, go and, you can go throw your laptop away. You can go hide in a cave in Montana. The problem with the cave in Montana is that you're still there. Listen, I'm just giving it the way I got it, okay? I'm telling you what Jesus told me to say, okay? I'm just telling you that you need to hear this, okay? This is important. This is super important that we need to understand that he's not saying you can't appreciate someone's beauty. You're going to see good-looking people on television and as you walk through life. But there's a difference, and all of us know it, there's a difference between looking and lusting. Major difference. There's a difference between appreciating someone is good-looking and lusting after that person. And here's what's funny, ladies. For those of you like, oh, well, this is more of a guy thing than a woman thing. You can actually lust and it not be physical. You can actually lust emotionally after someone and say, man, I wish my husband loved me like that. I wish this person led me like that. I wish this person provided for me like that. So you can actually commit lust and sin without actually doing the sexual piece because you're expecting something from that person that should only be given to you in Jesus. That's why this is so dangerous. Lusting and looking are two different things. You can look and appreciate someone's beauty without lusting after them. Here's another thing that's different. Lusting and loving are also very different. Here's why, here's why. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, love, when you love someone, you tell them, hey, you are one in a million. When you lust after someone, what you're telling them is actually you're one of a million. So love says you're one in a million. Lust says you're one of a million. That's why what I think should happen is if you're a guy here and you're struggling with pornography and sexual sin, if you're ever thinking about being in a relationship with someone, and this is true if you're a girl too, and you're struggling with this stuff, you should sit down with your potential boyfriend or girlfriend and say, say this. Say, listen, I really like you. I really, really like you. Just know that because of my sexual sin and my sexual addiction, I'm always going to be comparing you with women who are unrealistic. Just so you know, our sex life is really going to struggle because I don't really need you for sex because I'm getting it from someone else. And also, just so you know, because of this, our relationship is eventually probably going to burn down. Now, would you date me? Check yes or no on the box. <laughs> and you're like, I don't think I should share that information. Well, when you potentially marry someone, do you share your debt information? Do you tell them your education? Do you tell them your family? Do you tell them the things that have been done to you and you've done? Yeah. So I think you should bring this up. Actually, one of the people that most holds me accountable is my wife. Like, I tell my wife how I'm doing sexually. You know why? Because if I, if I actually ever sin, that's the person who I'm going to devastate more. More than anyone here, that's the person who I'm most going to hurt. So I always tell her, I'd rather have five minutes of awkwardness and you know how I'm doing than 40 years of divorce. Okay? So, what we see here is that this is a dead serious thing. That love makes someone one in a million Lust makes someone one of a million. That's just how it works. And C.S. Lewis says, hey, you want to know if you actually love someone or if you're lusting? He says, I could tell you very easily. How do you treat them five minutes after you have sex? If you love someone, you've been drawn closer to them. If you're lusting, you walk away from them. He says, if you're lusting, then you're treating them no better than you treat a pack of cigarettes. 
That's what he says. You smoke the cigarettes, you're done. You throw them out. Okay? So what we see, hopefully by now, is that every single one of us has a problem with lust. And as a result, because lust and adultery are the same, every single one of us, if you have a pulse, is an adulterer. That's what Jesus is saying. And if we're not convinced of that, then the solution is not going to mean anything to you. So I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Every single one of us struggles with this sin. So now that we've seen the problem of lust, I want to conclude this morning by looking at the solution for lust. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus in this passage, he actually gives us two solutions. There are two solutions to our problem with lust. The first solution, he says here, look what he says. He says, but uh, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here's the thing. Jesus says that in order for us to deal with our problem of lust, there's actually two solutions. There's an external solution, something we do on the exterior, and there's an internal solution, something that we do on the interior, okay? The first solution to our problem with lust is an external solution. Jesus says that we need to be drastic in how we deal with sexual sin. He uses hyperbole. He uses exaggeration. He says you are to cut your right, arm, right hand off. You are to pluck your right eye out. Now, Jesus isn't actually saying that we do that, even though that one church father actually took him, you know, at his word and did it. What Jesus is saying is that we have to be drastic when it comes to sexual sin. We have to be willing to be drastic. And here's what's interesting. He's not talking about mutilation. He's talking about mortification. Mutilation is when you cut yourself physically, actually cut a body part off. Mortification is where you kill sin. You are ruthless in the killing of your sin. John Owen, who's a Puritan who died a long time ago, has a book called The Mortification of Sin. And the whole book is about if you're not killing sin, sin is killing you. Okay? Someone's killing somebody. And we have to be mortifying our sin. We have to be dramatic and over the top and drastic when it comes to our sexual sin. Because it is dead serious. It is dead serious. That's what he's saying to us. That's how we got to get. We got to get to the point where we're like, well, this is not just, this is not something I just tiptoe around. This is a dead serious thing. Now, the question is, why does he bring up eyes and hands? Why does he bring up in particular the right eye and the right hand? Well, there's two reasons commentators say. The first reason is because your right eye and your right hand in those days were seen as symbols of power. They were, they were seen as the most powerful thing about you. It was your greatest asset, if you will. And so Jesus is saying, you have to be willing to cut off the best thing about you. Your relationships, your, your network, your platform, your opportunities, your career, whatever it is. If that thing is leading you towards sin, you should cut that thing off immediately. No matter how strong it looks like. Because no matter, no matter how strong it is, it's actually a very weak thing if it's tempting you to commit sexual sin. Okay? Here's the other reason, though, why he brings up the hand, the right hand and the right eye. Because those are the body parts that are used when you sin sexually. I look with my eyes. That's how I receive. And then when you look at sins like masturbation, the hand. That's actually what the commentators say. So we get all grossed out when we talk about sexual stuff. That's actually what the commentators say. He's being that literal. Cut off the body parts figuratively that are keeping you from Jesus and are keeping you in sin. We have to be drastic. And a lot of us aren't drastic enough. We're just not. 
There's actually, a, 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 I just thought of this, but um, um, in, in one of C.S. Lewis's books, he, he talks about how, how there's this, there, he, he's, he's in heaven. He's seeing this, this vision of, I can't even think of the book, but he, he's thinking of, of a vision of heaven and hell. And, and in the book, there's a, there's a guy who has lust on his shoulder. There's an animal on his shoulder. And an angel comes up to him and he's like, hey, if you want to get into heaven, let me take it away. Because the guy's complaining about how much he hates lust. He's like, I hate lust. It's horrible. Get rid of it. I want to get rid of it. And the angel's like, well, let me cut it off for you. No, 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 no. Don't cut it off. Like, let's, not, let's just not feed it for a little bit. No, 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 no. Let's not be drastic. I don't want to. That's how a lot of us are, right? Sexual sin is destroying us. Jesus shows up and says, hey, let me help you cut it off. And you're like, no, whoa, 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 whoa. What am I going to do when I'm depressed? What am I, what am I going to do when I'm alone? What am, I, what am I going to do when my wife and I are fighting? It's bad, but it's not that bad, Jesus. Don't cut it out. No, 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 it's not that serious. I don't need amputation. That's what we do. And so the question is, what can we do? What can you and I do to actually, what's the external steps we can take? I have a, a three-step process I want to I wanna, uh, present to you. Actual, ex, an external solution to your problem. It starts with three A's. It's three A's. The first thing we have to do is we have to admit that we have a problem. For some of you, that was all you needed to do today. You just needed to admit that you had a sexual lust problem and that it's way more dangerous than what you thought. So the first thing, and here's the thing, you admit it to yourself, you admit it to God, and you admit it to the people who you've hurt. Admit. Okay? Then the second thing is action. There's an actual action. Because here's what usually happens. I preached on sex, like I said, a few months ago. And I remember thinking, man, should I, this week I was like, should I bring it up again? Because, you know, I just brought it up. Should I bring it up again? I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to bring it up because probably no one did anything about the first sermon. So I'm going to go ahead and say it again. Because usually what happens is you feel really bad during the message. You're like, oh, man, I can't wait for this thing to end. I feel horrible. And then it's over and you go back to living exactly how you're living. And so once you admit it, if all you do is admit it, then that's only the first step. It's not really, it's only confession if you do that. But it's not, it's only, it becomes repentance when you actually start doing something about it. Okay? And the last A, so it's admit then it's take action. And the last thing is accountability. Accountability. Here, here's the thing. The whole Sermon on the Mount, if you look at how Jesus starts, he's talking to his disciples. In other words, he's not talking to just one individual. He's talking to a group of people. Jesus is saying, look, you don't, you don't have to do this alone. I'm talking to all of you. So one of the ways that you can do it is by walking in the light. It says when I walk in the light as he is in the light, we have, not only do I have fellowship with God, I have fellowship with other people accountability. Find someone who's going to hold you accountable. Find someone who's going to ask you the questions. So admit it, take action, and find accountability. I'm not an application person. You guys know that. But this is dead serious stuff. And I've seen way too many marriages, way too many single people, way too many children destroyed by this sin. Okay? So the first solution is an external solution. Jesus says, cut off your arm, cut, you know, gouge out your eye. There's an external solution. But here's the thing. If all we are given is an external solution, we have a problem, right? Because a lot of, here's why a lot of sermons stop. A lot of pastors are like, go do it, go fix it, you got it. Most sermons in America will stop right here. External, fix it. The problem with only giving you an external solution is that you have an internal problem. The problem with only giving you a, a hand-body solution is that you have a heart problem. So a heart problem requires a heart solution. That's the thing. 
We can't stop at just the external. We have to go into the internal. Guys, listen, listen. This is, this is fascinating. The reason why there has to be an internal solution is not just because we have an internal problem. But, but, but remember how we talked about last week? We said that the, the, the answer for anger was actually a very counterintuitive, unexpected answer. We said that the answer to anger was anger. Is that the same Greek word that was used there for anger was the same Greek word that was used to describe God's wrath for our sin. So the only way that anger can be dealt with, our sinful anger, was God's righteous anger dealing with it. This solution to our problem, the internal solution to our problem with lust and over-desire is actually just as counterintuitive. Because the way that you deal with your problem with desire is by finding a greater desire. Follow along with me here, okay? The, the way that you deal, I'm going to say that again, the way that you deal with your desire problem is by finding a greater desire that overcomes the smaller desire. That's why Thomas Chalmers, who's a Puritan who died a long time ago, he said the way that you deal with inordinate affections is by finding a new, he's like, it's by the expulsive power of a new affection. Okay? Let me say it again. The way you deal with your inordinate sinful affections is by discovering and looking for the expulsive power of a new affection, a greater affection. So the way I deal with my problem with desire is by finding a greater desire. The way I, feel, I deal with my desire for beauty is to find something that's actually beautiful. That's how I deal with it. That's why in John chapter 4, the woman at the well is sitting there. Jesus walks up to this woman. She's a Samaritan. And Jesus starts talking to her about water. And she's shocked that she's even, he's even talking to her because he's a Jewish man and she's a Samaritan woman. And she, she goes to the well at noon because she had all this sexual baggage in her past and she didn't want anyone to see her. So Jesus walks up to her and says, hey, can I get some water? And they start talking about water. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, I can give you a water that will fully satisfy you. I can give you the water of life. And she's like, what? Right? And then all of a sudden, Jesus goes from hydration to husbands. He says, hey, hey, listen, before we talk about the water thing, I want you to go find your husbands for me and your husband for me. And she's like, oh, well, I'm not married. He's like, no, I know you're not married. The guy that you're currently sleeping with is not your husband, and you've been divorced five times. Okay? So why does Jesus go from water to sex? Why does Jesus go from water to relationships? The reason why Jesus has to do it is because the woman was trying to find her living water in men, in sex, in lust. Jesus showed up and says, listen, listen, you're never going to be satisfied. You can be married 20 more times, and you're never going to find what your soul is actually looking for. The water that you're looking for is found in me, not in the person you're sleeping with. Come on, church. Jesus is the living water. The way that you, 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 you move away from these, these, these sinful uh, uh, lusts and desires, these broken cisterns, is by going to the actual water, the actual well of life. When I go to Jesus and I start drinking from that, and I get that greater desire, I see that greater beauty. And Jesus and God have been beautiful since day one. Every other person that you look at their beauty, it'll eventually go away. Jesus is just as beautiful today as he was when he was walking with Adam, as he was when he was on the mountain with Moses, as he was when David was writing about him in the Psalms. Jesus is just as beautiful today as he was back then. It's the only beauty that doesn't perish. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I overcome this desire, this sinful desire, with a greater gospel desire. Man, when I see Jesus for who he is, whoo! See, when, when we think of sexual sin, we almost always think of Jesus as a judge, right? We, we're scared of him. We're like, oh, he's going to judge me. I got to obey. What this passage is saying, no, 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 no. Don't look at Jesus as a judge. Look at Jesus as your groom. 
Okay, so follow me here. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that if you put sex outside of its right context, it can lead to hell, right? But the same thing is also true. If you put sex in its proper context, it can lead to heaven, right? Since Jesus is our bridegroom, Ephesians chapter 5 says that any marriage, any romantic relationship ultimately points to the relationship with him. And so if sex is powerful enough to lead me to hell, then it's actually powerful enough to lead me to heaven if I do it correctly. Jesus is not your judge as much as he is your bridegroom. When I see Jesus as my bridegroom, it changes everything. You see, in the passage, Jesus gets really drastic here. He says, cut your eye out, you know, gouge your eye out, cut your arm off. And it gets really drastic and really morbid. Then we find out that he's not actually telling us to be that drastic and cut our actual bodies. But, but what's interesting is that even though on the one hand he's exaggerating, on the other hand he wasn't exaggerating because one day someone was going to have to be mutilated for our sexual sin. Someone was going to have to be beaten. Someone was going to have to be spit on. And so even though it's an exaggeration for us to do it, it wasn't an exaggeration for him to do it. He knew that one day he was going to have to do that for you and for me. Listen, at the cross, the only pure one died for the impure ones. At the cross, the only moral one died for the immoral ones. At the cross, the, the faithful bridegroom died for the unfaithful bride. At the cross, Jesus experienced isolation from the Father so that by faith in him, we might experience intimacy with the Father. That's what he did for you and for me. To the degree that I see Jesus' desire for me at the cross, to that same degree I will desire him. Listen, listen. The gaze of God is what exposes your sin. But praise be to God that it's the grace of God that covers it. That's what we see. And you know what's even crazier? What I love about Jesus is that Jesus is not just in the business of forgiving and cleansing and loving the people with sexual sin. But what's beautiful about the New Testament is when you look at the New Testament, he not only forgives those people, he not only cleanses those people, but then he uses those people. Because when you look at his, at his genealogy, there's two women. that Women were never in genealogies. And the two women that he chooses are Tamar and Rahab, one who was raped and the other one who was a prostitute. So one who was a, a, an aggressor and one who was a, a victim. He, he brings two women up that, that, that not only did he restore them, but now they're a part of his genealogy. Then you look at the story of Mary Magdalene, who also was a prostitute. Jesus takes her out of prostitution and makes him one of his most faithful disciples. Then the woman at the well. Not only does he forgive the woman at the well, but then that same woman goes back to her town, tells everybody about Jesus, and the whole town comes to know Jesus because of the woman. So Jesus not only forgives you, Jesus not only cleanses you, Jesus not only loves you, but then he uses you for his glory. That's crazy. Come on. That's what he does for you and for me. That's what he does. Listen, here's the thing. Even though the problem is way worse, way worse than we could have ever have expected, and even though the, the standard is way higher than we would have ever have thought, praise be to God that the solution is way more glorious than we could ever have hoped. Can I get an amen? amen. 